Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Hello, and welcome to today's session, The Role of Trust in Analytics. My name is Pete Bomisil. I'm the VP of Global Marketing here at Pyramid Analytics, and I'm honored to host today's session. First, a few housekeeping items. The, schedule, the session is scheduled to last roughly 50 minutes. Um, all participants are currently in listen-only mode, but please submit your questions as we go along. I know Howard and Omri are both eager to answer your questions. Um, the chat is being recorded and we'll send a replay later today, along with some additional um, resources. So to frame our discussion today and, and before I introduce our, our esteemed panel, today we're going to discuss the role of trust in data-driven success. It goes without saying that uh, today's most successful businesses are data-driven. But why is data-driven success so elusive? Well, the reasons are varied. The ultimate truth is that finding data-driven success is hard. It's really hard. Now, if we agree that decision-making should be done with data, and we agree that you need to create a culture around that, and we agree that the culture should be substantiated with the right platform, then why is it so difficult? <laughs> so we're going to seed the conversation today with three overarching questions. Um, what is the role of trust in the decision-making process itself? How do companies cultivate a data-driven culture? And finally, can a unified tool stack encourage unity and trust? Now, our recent collective experience over the past several months has, like, has likely widened trust gaps within organizations who weren't firmly on the data-driven footing. Um, so what do we mean by trusted analytics? And why are trusted analytics the critical missing piece to data-driven success? What steps can you take today to advance your respective journeys toward that data-driven success? To discuss this topic, we're excited to have on hand Howard Dresner, Chief Research Officer at Dresner Advisory Services, and Omri Cole, CEO and co-founder of Pyramid Analytics. With over 30 years experience, Howard Dresner is a well-known figure in the analytics and business intelligence space. He spent well over a decade as the VP and research fellow at Gartner, where he served as the lead analyst for their BI practice. He is currently the chief research officer at Dresner Advisory Services, a role he has held since 2007. And as a side note, for those of you who have not had exposure to uh, Dresner Advisory Services research, um, it is some of the best in the business. Um, and in fact, we'll send a, a copy of one of the reports um, in, in a follow-up to today's session. Howard is certainly someone you should get to know if you don't know him already. Uh, joining Howard today is our very own Omri Cole. As CEO and co-founder, Omri leads Pyramid Analytics Strategy and Operations, bringing his deep understanding of the BI market and valuable management expertise to a company at the forefront of today's fast evolving BI industry. Omri is a highly experienced entrepreneur with a proven track record for developing and managing fast growth companies. So let's dig into this topic. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be with you on this panel, Howard. Likewise, Omri. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Omri, is that a virtual background? No, I risked my life and went to the office. 
I'm not touching my face. I'm not doing anything dangerous, but I am in a physical location by Thanks myself. Taking the risk for us today. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. So along those lines, and let's just let's get this out of the way. Um, and as a framing for the discussion, I know that this is something that's on everybody's mind, and uh, it's inevitable to come up through the three. Uh, three question sets that that we're going to talk about. But we'll start with a statement to to frame this conversation um, in a, a way that's applicable to, to what's on everybody's mind. The companies that have an analytic strategy based on trust will be best prepared to succeed in a post-COVID-19 environment. Now, Howard, I know that you've done um, quite a bit of research lately. Um, specifically about the impact of COVID-19 on the BI space and how companies are uh, preparing themselves for this co post-COVID-19 environment. Um, could you take a couple minutes to, to walk us through the, the highlights of those findings? Uh, what's, the, what's the temperature in the market and how are people feeling? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And we continue to collect data uh, and we will continue uh, collecting the data until the pandemic is behind us and nobody really knows when that is, quite frankly. So actually, uh, folks that are tuned in right now, you can go to covidbusinessimpact.com and fill out a one-minute survey and you'll actually get instant results if you fill out the survey. And we're uh, continually collecting that information so that we can see how things are changing over time. And there are actually some changes, but the, the impact of COVID has been far-reaching. So it's been impacting businesses in terms of uh, loss of business. Some of them have had to uh, shut down entirely or shut down partially. Employees, almost all employees, uh, seem to be working at home, obviously with uh, some ex exceptions by uh, industry. And uh, in many cases, budgets and projects have been delayed. Some have been frozen. Some have been canceled. Uh, so the impact has been uh, pretty far-reaching, but it's um, changing. A little bit, and um, I I think there's hope for optimism. We'll see. Um, June's data so far seems a little bit more optimistic. Things have seemingly stabilized a bit, and things are opening up. So there are fewer folks that are canceling uh, their projects, and there are in fact more projects that are starting to get initiated. So I think that there, there is cause for hope. Uh, the challenge is that nobody really knows when the pandemic is going to end. And, uh, you know, if it's obviously if it extends well beyond this year, uh, the economic impact will, you know, I think, be uh, relatively severe. We can see these, uh, these numbers uh, certainly change over time. But it definitely creates uh, both some challenges and uh, some opportunities. For instance, a lot of organizations, uh, people working at home, was a challenge because they didn't even have hardware. Um, and they had to all of a sudden go out and buy people laptops that didn't have to have laptops. And people had to figure out how to dial in via VPN or uh, learn how to use applications remotely, which they never had to do before. So I think that's part of the stabilization. So people have been doing that for a few months and people know how to do it. Uh, but um, it's definitely been disruptive in, uh, in a number of ways. Interesting. And uh, Omri, so Pyramid Analytics is by its very nature a distributed global company. We've got five offices across the globe and many of the, the employees are remote. Um, 
And you spend a lot of your time talking to investors and executives, um, specifically at uh, some of the G2K companies. And um, what has what what challenges has this presented for maybe us internally in terms of um, trusted analytics, but also for some of the uh, executives that you're talking to on a daily basis? Yeah, it, I, it's a it's a great question. I think you know that Howard mentioned that there are also opportunities um, that presented itself uh, during that interesting time. I think one of the things that we see very strongly is the need to understand the business much deeper, much broader um, in a transparent way. So what we're seeing actually for us, first of all, internally, also as you know, as a data-driven business, is that the more we understand the challenges we're facing um, and can measure them and can react and respond to those um, concerns quickly, the faster we actually got out and and being able to resolve them. So we, first of all, as you know, as as big believers in in that need of analytics and transparency, implemented as as many um, processes that we could in order to assure that we understand the core of the business, but also all the um, peripheral aspects of it. Um, I, I think that you know it's it's interesting that um, when you talk to um, investors, you talk to um, executives in big companies. One of the things that people really realize, and maybe it's a side comment, that you know when you don't travel, when you don't go to the office, when you don't commute, you actually have more time. Um, and we, we see we see projects um, moving faster. We see people are actually more um, attentive to address uh, pressing issues faster, quicker, smarter. So, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm an optimistic in nature. So I actually think that um, we will all learn from that experience of forced working from home that technology can actually enable us to do lots of things very smartly. Um, you know, things that we used to have in corridor conversations can translate itself to tools and systems that can provide us um, probably almost the same efficiency and, and experience. And, and analytics specifically, and, and I think, you know, I, I don't wanna start um, the conversation ahead of time, but I, I think analytics specifically in that time of, of world crisis, is going to be a big way for people to get out of um, those challenges and, and face them. Yeah, I would uh, add a couple of additional things. First of all, one of the things that we noted is that organizations that are well run and that are fact-based in nature have actually been less impacted by the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And so I think that there's, there's a lot to be learned from that because I think that organizations that did not have a fact-based culture within their organization are at a significant disadvantage. And it, it's sort of a wake-up call, I think, for them in many ways uh, to realize that it's really important for the organization to have its act together as it relates to data and analyzing that data and disseminating the insights uh, to the organization. And so when a significant disruptive factor, in this case, uh, COVID-19 comes along, 
it's much easier for them to regroup and to manage through the crisis and do it with uh, greater precision uh, as opposed to you know, organizations that really don't have a well-founded plan. And that's why in some cases you see organizations just doing across uh, the board budget cuts, for instance, because they simply just don't have the information at hand to make those decisions with the benefit of real facts. Perfect. Great, great points. So now that we've gotten the elephant uh, in the room out of the way and um, we can thread this the virus topic, the, yeah. <laughs> the virus, now we've gotten the virus out of the way, we can thread this, uh, the theme throughout the, the remaining three sections, questions. Um, I'm sure it'll come up again, um, but I think it, it provides good context for our viewers who may be facing their own their own respective challenges. So starting with trust in the decision-making process and talking about the role of trust in the decision-making process itself. Howard, I know you and your colleagues at Dresner Advisory Services recently released a report on the, um, I believe you call it the hyper-decisive maturity model, is that correct? And I believe that trust in data and uh, trust in data and governance is one of the nine capabilities that you identify as uh, critical for faster, better decision making um, within this framework that you call hyper decisive maturity. Um, so, starting with you, can you talk a little bit about that trust capability and uh, as it relates to decision making itself? Sure, but. Uh just let's step back for just a moment and try to understand why we need to be hyper decisive and basically as organizations move forward and uh, through digital transformation and become digital enterprises tremendous amounts of data are in fact generated and so the need to be able to harness all of that data quickly and to make sense of it and then to be able to use it as a way to execute and align the organization around strategy and mission is absolutely critical and those that can't do that are going to fall behind their competitors so trust is a huge factor it's uh, not just trust in the data certainly uh, trust in the data and the governance of the data is really important to be able to trust the organization so it's a cultural issue uh, probably more than anything else it comes down to human beings and belief systems and uh, and then uh, being able to ensure that everybody's following or working from the same playbook but with that in mind, there are some uh, technology issues and some data issues which have to be addressed. And so trust is a big part of that. I have to be able to trust the data that I'm using, that it is reliable, that it is up to date, that it is complete, and that the perspective that I'm building as a result of that uh, can be relied upon and that we all have the same related perspective. It's a frustrating and I've been in roles like this where we all come into an executive meeting and uh, we all have different data. And, uh, you know, I remember being in a role a number of years ago where, you know, I had a counterpart in another part of the organization and we would try to coordinate the night before to reconcile our different numbers from different systems before we walked into that management meeting because if we didn't have that opportunity, and that did happen, uh, it, would, uh, it would be um, problematic, shall we say. <laughs> And I've seen that in other organizations, too. And in my last book, uh, it, you know, we talked about that specific issue with a number of the case studies. 
where you know senior managers would walk in and they would get a lashing because their numbers didn't agree, or the last numbers that were presented were the ones that senior management uh, used to move forward. So having that common, trusted perspective based on data that we can rely upon is really critical. And I will also note that it's really hard to build that trust in the data, um, but really easy to destroy it. <laughs> so it takes a long time to build it up where people really are confident, and then all you need is just um, one problem, one mishap, and uh, where you're not communicating with the users, and that, uh, that trust is very quickly diminished. Sure. And in that instance where you have a broken trust around, um, around analytics, how do you repair that trust? Um, because I think one of, the, one of the central thrusts of this conversation is if there's not inherent trust in, in the data, in the analytics, then um, it, you know, inherently the, um, the, in, the trust environment breaks down and ultimately the, the data-driven initiatives fail and data-driven success is then elusive. So, you know, nobody's perfect, no system, no environment is perfect. Um, how do you repair that trust in, in the decision-making process once it's broken? Well, I think someone has to be in charge of it, right? There has to be a go-to person. And what happens in many organizations is that we put together a team for the project, they build the project, or they, you know, develop all of the infrastructure and applications and what have you. And then when the project is done, the team is disbanded and they go off to some other project. So having that continuity is really important. I've been advocating for years to have a center of excellence or competency center, and we actually publish a report on it every year because we believe it's important to have continuity and to build and document and to promote best practices. And it's having the right resources. Uh, that's part of the trust as well, right? So trusted resources that are responsible for this and that continuity uh, that uh, after some time, um, success will build on success. So if you have a, a problem with that today and you build or put together a team that is now the go-to team that has the right resources and the right credibility as well to start delivering BI and analytics within the organization successfully, uh, then you start to rebuild that reputation uh, that, uh, that may have been tarnished in the past. Understood. And, and Omri, um, so our mission at Pyramid Analytics is to help every one of our customers uh, achieve data-driven success beyond their wildest dreams. Um, can you talk about the vision that you and the co-founders had in creating environments for um, these uh, trusted decision-making? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, first of all, I, I agree with every word, you know, Howard, that, that you said. When you think about maybe the last few decades and how data evolved to be such a significant part of businesses and organizations. It started with just collecting you know, data, then massive amounts of data, then starting to learn from that data in silos and in specific departments. And, and I think that 
what's interesting in, in today's world is that people are looking at cross-function, cross-department um, uh, insights into uh, what's going on in their businesses and how to make decisions that are not necessarily influence their own little universe, but actually will be cross-company. Um, interesting to see that Maybe in the last few years, what we're seeing is that CEOs, even in very big, you know, upper mid-market and enterprise organizations, CEO takes the strategy of data implementation and digital transformation. I think that when you talk about culture, when you talk about trust, when you talk about decision um, decision making processes, before we even talk about pyramids vision, we need to understand what's going on in the market and and what we're seeing from from the customer perspective is that there is some kind of a scissors movement that maybe it's a it's it started to be much more common in in the last few years where systems and tools are implemented at the at the functions and the department level um, but now from a corporate perspective from a cxo level perspective there is a strong push to stop being intuitive and stop saying you know i know my business i can feel how uh, things are going, I have an intuition to what might be next, but actually to manage their, um, their business based on, this, based on insights that comes from, from their, um, their systems and tools. And, and I think that's what would drive eventually the digital transformation um, and the, um, the decisions that will be made based on trusted analytics. So when we started kind of thinking about pyramid, you know, maybe a decade ago, we realized that eventually we will enter the era of platforms. In order to gain trust, you need to have a centralized system of record. You need to, to have one system that everybody can trust. Howard mentioned earlier going into a board meeting or a, you know, management meeting and everybody argues about the numbers, you know, um, you were fortunate to have colleagues that were willing to coordinate with you the numbers the night before, but I've been in many cases where people were actually in the meeting arguing about whose number is right and whose um, performance is presented accurately. And I think in the world of platforms, in the world of providing a um, cohesive overview, or holistic overview of the business and being able to agree that there is one, eventually one system of, of, of presentation, it's not just the record, but one system of presentation, then people will start trusting it. I think once, once trust is, is part of, of the business culture, then making, you know, cultural decision making um, becomes a different story. In, in maybe a last, last comment on, on that part, what's interesting to see is that there is an emerge of the chief data officer role. Sometimes it's not necessarily called CDO or chief data officer. Sometimes it's in the hands of CIO or CDO, but eventually there is a function that has the responsibility for the overarching data strategy across the board and have a long-term strategy to um, to implement that, at least in my my view and in our world of um, trying to support the execution of a strategy like that, um, having someone who sees the organization, not just from a data perspective, but from a strategic perspective, how to leverage the data 
that was aggregated over the years means that organizations are entering the era of um, data-driven decision-making and, and making, it, making it a culture versus just a nice-to-have, it's a must-have today. Yeah, I, I agree with that, certainly. And we do see a lot more chief data officers, not as many as there should be, but the numbers are growing. We've been tracking that for four years now, both the chief data officer and the chief analytics officer. And the most effective organizations have a CDO in place. And amongst those, the most successful CDOs actually report to the CEO. And I think that's really key when you have a CEO that recognizes the value of fact-based decision-making. It makes it a lot easier to elevate uh, data and analytics and business intelligence to the level of a strategic initiative. And uh, to your point, Omri, you know, politics and culture and conflict resolution is uh, really a big part of it. And that's something that, I mean, there are many things that can be done that don't require the CEO to drive it. Uh, when you're talking about culture and politics, the CEO really needs to drive that with their executive team. And those that have adopted a CDO and a chief analytics officer, both are better, by the way, uh, they, they tend to be uh, much more strategic thinking and much more aware that facts and fact-based decision-making are actually important or key to their own personal success. And they want to push that throughout the entire organization as a way, once again, to achieve that kind of alignment with the strategy that we talked about uh, earlier. And I've been talking about this notion of information democracy since 1993. How do we get timely, relevant insights into the hands of everyone, all stakeholders, so that they can do a better job executing the various tasks associated with their role in the organization? And I think that once again, the culture and bringing on board a chief data officer, having that chief data officer preferably report into the CEO is a huge down payment towards uh, that end. And Howard, I'm interested. Um, so you mentioned that there aren't as many CXO level data leaders as there should be or, or as you expect. Why is that? What are the, what are the barriers? What's holding people up? Uh, I, well, I think that it comes down to belief systems, right? And it really, uh, it really requires the CEO and the C-levels in the organization to recognize that there's an opportunity. I won't say a problem. <laughs> to recognize that there's an opportunity and that data is really strategic to them and to their future. And so if you really believe that, if you have that vision, and I have seen organizations that have that vision, uh, then you can start to make real progress and start to embrace data as a cultural tenet uh, within the organization. But um, most organizations just simply aren't there. Uh, most organizations are somewhere in the middle. You know, they're struggling with day-to-day -day issues. They're very tactical in nature, and they're not always uh, thinking strategically. And it, sometimes it requires generational change as well. You know, I remember in the early days, in the early days, Back in the day, as we old people say, <laughs> when technology was just starting to enter the corner office and C-level executives just started to use computers. You know, back then, I mean, I'm talking about in the early 80s, you know, the C-levels or any VP level would not have a computer in their office. 
And if they did, as computers started to you know show up, it would just be in the in the in a corner somewhere. It would have its own table and a chair. And back in the days of DOS, there'd be a C prompt burned into the screen because they never used it. And that required generational change uh, to where we are today, where you know executives are very comfortable using technology. They all use email. They all use computers. Uh, they use a variety of applications, but not all of them are um, data savvy and data literate. And so sometimes it takes generational change. Sometimes it requires a catalyst. And maybe COVID is one of those catalysts. It's a wake-up call. It's disruptive change. People realize, okay, well, now maybe is the moment where we really need to double down on data and really make the investment. And that means, by the way, another topic is data literacy. And I know we'll talk about that throughout here, but Everyone has to be data literate within the organization, and that includes the C-levels. And there are different levels of data literacy. Not everybody has to be a data scientist. However, we all have to have a comfort level in leveraging data, combining data, presenting data, uh, using the right visualizations for it, all the way up to those that uh, do need to be and should be uh, data scientists. And that's something that's been lacking in most organizations. When we do survey them, uh, most do not have very high data literacy. And what's troubling about that is those that don't have high data literacy actually don't have a data literacy program. So there's an opportunity, I think, for organizations to become more strategic with data. Yeah, I will just echo on one thing. I think what we're seeing in the market uh, when we approach customers and prospects is that CEOs are very much involved today in the implementation of data systems. Um, the back end, the front end, uh, what kind of tools and systems are in place to sometimes to a very, very granular level. Is it going on the cloud? Is it on premise? Is it both? You know, very, um, I would say, technical decisions are now done or being, you know, introduced by CEOs, which definitely um, at least in my point of view, resonates very strongly with the fact that CEOs are driving the change of making decisions using data. I think that's a perfect segue into our next section, which is, and it's been, it's been teased a little bit, uh, but talking about the data-driven culture. So, um, So Howard, um, start with you again. I, I know you wrote the book on data-driven uh, culture back in what 2009, and um, what were the critical elements for data-driven culture back then, and and how has it changed over the last decade or so? Uh, well, there, back then we had a model with six competencies. Now we have nine. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one. Um, I think that um, to have a data-driven culture, it really you can start anywhere in the organization. And I've seen it start with an IT. Uh, IT can actually drive some of that. We talked about that earlier, things like data literacy. IT can actually drive data literacy within the organization. IT can also drive completeness of data, the data quality, the reliability the accessibility to that data. There are so many things that can be done right now that don't require the C-levels to start driving the culture or start driving <clears throat> transparency and 
accountability initiatives. So there are things that can be done. Uh, but it's also important to note that to become data-driven, some of the stovepipes have to be broken down. So for instance, finance, they own their own data, and they control how that's shared. Sales, marketing, HR, same thing. There are these walls that have been built around these various fiefdoms, if you will, within the enterprise. Those have to be broken down because every role within the organization needs some access to all of that data in order to build perspective. And so once again, you know, that's an opportunity. And that can be done in the middle of the organization. Those departments can and sometimes do take the initiative to start breaking down or chipping at those walls uh, that have been built over many, many years. That's also obviously where uh, the C-levels can play a significant role, and they can lead by example to try and break down those walls. Of course, for a CEO to break down those walls, it's a lot easier. Uh, than doing it with at the departmental level or certainly from IT. Uh, but, you know, it certainly can be done because there is uh, mutual benefit to doing that. So uh, I did one case study uh, with a healthcare system where medical operations and uh, finance decided to start to collaborate. And all of a sudden, they had much better, much more reliable perspective, which allowed them to become data-driven. And that set an example for the rest of the organization. And so next thing you know, they're actually serving as consultants to other functions within the enterprise to have some of those same benefits. So in other words, they would go into those executive meetings that I talked about a moment ago, and they would have consistent data, which, which actually helped them in many ways, uh, you know, personally as well as professionally. Uh, so I think that's really how it starts. It can start at the bottom. It can start at the middle. Um, having that uh, CEO, more than support, but CEO ownership or embracing the notion of data-driven culture is the icing on top of the cake. Uh, and that's really what makes you what I call performance-directed and also these days uh, makes you move in the direction of being uh, truly hyper-decisive in nature. And, and Omri, as one of those CEOs of a data-driven organization, what have some of the, the challenges been and, and what are some of the opportunities you see coming, coming up? So I, I think, you know, when you think about culture and what is culture, I think one of the maybe fundamentals of culture is a shared belief system. Um, it's a it's values and um, it's values that we all as an organization, as a community, as a society, agree to um, to embrace. And I think when it comes to data, it's roughly the same story. It's a shared belief system in the data. So what is the belief system that we're trying as CEOs? or as a data-driven companies, um, or people that work in a company that is embracing that type of culture is, is finding the way to implement that shared belief system. Um, and, and actually, it's interesting because it is about systems. It is about being able to use, um, leverage, and utilize the systems that are in place um, and build processes on top of that that would resonate with the culture that an organization agreed upon. I, I, I think that not every data-driven organization's culture is similar or identical. 
but I think that there is a definitely um, similarities in <clears throat> in terms of how it has been spread across the organization. For me, it will always start with um, with a function that has the responsibility for building data assets and sharing them across the board. It could be, by the way, starting from the CEO. It could be the excellent center that Howard um, mentioned earlier. It could be even um, VP analytics that um, feels that now it's time for the organization to embrace the big investment that was made in data. Keep in mind, <clears throat> the data was, was you know, in the hands of or in, in organizations for decades. Um, Howard mentioned, you know, um, in the 80s, people started to put computers in, in, you know, corner offices, but that's roughly when people started collecting data. So big organizations invested billions of dollars over the years in collecting the data. And if they will be um, fast to respond and, and quick to leverage those investments, then they will see the ROI very quickly. And, and I think that for CEOs, usually it's about ROI, right? Can I actually um, get something out of my big investment in creating the, that culture? What, what's nice about data-driven culture is that ROI is measurable. Uh, maybe unlike other cultures, um, you know, let's be kind, let's be, you know, collaborative, maybe more difficult to measure um, the outcome and the, the ROI around data. The KPIs are very clear. And we mentioned earlier that maybe the best companies and the strongest companies and the fastest companies to grow in the world are data driven. It's because of that. It's because you can course correct instantly in real time uh, respond and react to um, good things and bad things and, and you know um, the companies that got out of the COVID crisis the fastest the quickest were definitely data driven because they knew what's what's going on in their business so I, I think that culture is a you know is a kind of a common shared belief system that is data is is what would drive that, that change. If people will embrace um, that culture and understand that there is a measurable ROI behind it, then it's a no-brainer. Um, if you know you put a dollar in and get you know um, two dollars on back, then yeah, it's a money-making machine. Yeah, I would uh, I would amplify that. So we actually I don't have the statistics at hand, but we do track ROI of business intelligence and analytics, and it's a really good investment. Most would suggest it's a high return or very high return in general. We actually have published some of that research uh, through our research insights. But I also wanted to mention one other thing. It, it does come down to people and their comfort level and knowing that, uh, that they're going to be rewarded for becoming fact-based. And I'll give you another example. So I did a case study in the book with Cleveland Clinic. And at the time, the CEO, uh, Toby Cosgrove, who has since retired, uh, he changed the approach over the, the previous CEO. So if you had bad numbers uh, with the previous CEO, you would be ostracized and criticized and it would affect your career. So nobody wanted to have bad numbers. Nobody wanted to share the bad news with the CEO. And when uh, Dr. Cosgrove came in, if your numbers were below or out of tolerance, he would say, how can I help? 
So he was there to support it. So it really does come down to culture and to human beings and what we believe and how we feel if we feel comfortable being transparent and being held accountable, um, then we're going to be able to build a data-driven and a fact-based culture as opposed to being fearful. And that's why you get people hoarding data or not wanting to share information. So it really is very much about uh, human beings and how comfortable we feel and going back to the original topic, what we trust, uh, not just our systems. Systems are important too, but we trust with our fellow workers and our organization. That's perfectly stated. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a great segue into our third topic, which is the, the platform or the tooling. Um, so can a unified tool stack encourage unity and trust? Uh, of course, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Um, so Omri, Pyramid was built from the ground up. Uh, to be a seamless, unified, trusted analytics platform. Um, can you talk about some of the things that um, were inherently broken or some of the, the things that are critical to having a trusted analytics platform? Yeah, of course. I, I think it, you, you already heard it um, in the last 45 minutes, probably many times. Um, we might not specifically pointed out that topic or that question, but it was mentioned in many ways. In order to implement a culture, in order to have a um, data-driven decision process cross functions and cross department, you need to have a standardized approach. Um, obviously, we're biased and, and our approach will be um, the, the era of platforms is back and you want to have one standardized solution uh, to cater for the entire organization. But if we put that aside for a second and think about a shared belief system, then in order to have a shared belief system, you need a system. And having multiple shared belief systems and having people running with different tools from different systems uh, creates a challenging, um, it, it is a challenging approach for an, an organization. One of the reasons People do go to meeting rooms and argue about numbers or try to uh, coordinate numbers is because they run off different tools and different tools present different um, outcomes. So if you don't start by, you know, um, having a cohesive strategy around data acquisition and data wrangling to a data discovery process to sharing and collaboration from a singular version of the truth, then um, multiple tooling might become a challenge. I think that it's pretty natural um, if you look at maybe the last couple decades that um, we, we like to refer to the pendulum of data analytics. It started highly anchored in IT. Everything had to go through IT. Um, IT was basically the center of knowledge and they were governing who can touch uh, which system and how. At some point, the pendulum kind of swung completely to the other side, and it was all about the business users, the end users' um, accessibility to, to data and being able to actually start exploring the journey of the opportunity to become data-driven and, and to do start making decisions based on data. The challenge with, with that um, exclusivity around business users 
is that it creates silos. That's what actually created the challenges in those meeting rooms where everybody had a system that was um, either tailored for his needs or for his function or his department. And it wasn't necessarily a cross-function, cross-department um, solution. And, and I think what we're seeing specifically when, you know, chief data officers kind of entered the era of, um, of data-driven businesses and, and have a strategy and have the tools and the, also the power to implement that strategy, they need a platform. They need a tool that can provide a standard solution for the entire organization. And I, our belief is that this is actually kind of the happy medium. On the one hand, you can leverage the investment that the organization did in governance and security, in availability and performance, um, assuring that everybody access the right data at the right time with the right credentials. And on the other end, um, providing or democratizing the access to the end users through a self-service, easy-to-use tool. So in a way, kind of benefiting from both sides of the pendulum. And, and that would be a unified approach. It would be a platform that will deliver, um, on the one hand, what the organization as a whole requires in terms of governance and, and, and actually leveraging and, and capitalizing on the massive investment that was done over the years but on the other end, democratizing the access. So maybe putting it in a more um, sophisticated terminology, um, centralizing um, the, the data assets and, and decentralizing the access to those data assets. And I, I, I believe that eventually those are the platforms that we will see in the future, that organizations will standardize on a single platform. Maybe to finish with, one thing that we like to say is that you have one ERP system, you have one CRM system. Why do you have 50 BI tools or 60 or 100 or sometimes more? Eventually, you will need to have one version of the truth, one system of record that, or one, one tool that will go into your system of records. So I do agree with, with much of that. This is a topic we could probably spend an entire hour on alone. A couple of things worth noting, we do find that organizations with real strategic intent around business intelligence and analytics have fewer tools. It's as simple as that. Uh, for instance, if you have the C-levels involved, you're much more likely to be able to standardize around tools, as opposed to finance having their tool or multiple tools, marketing, Salesforce, uh, salespeople, et cetera. Um, and I agree with Omri, you have issues around uh, different semantics in the different tools and different ways, different query engines, and so inevitably, if you ask a question against the same data set, you might get a different answer. That, that certainly is problematic. But what users really want is a consistent experience. They want to have the core functionality that they need to do their jobs. And that certainly includes things like data prep. It includes all the visualization tools. It includes you know, things like data storytelling. It includes collaborative capabilities. And yeah, governance too. But uh, governance, to our way of thinking, has to be uh, user-driven as well. So the users have a role in governance too. You need to have all of those things. And you mentioned ERP. What users don't want is a tool that's mandated by their ERP system. They do want best-of-free tools that can integrate with everything, but not necessarily have to be part of uh, some of those applications. So 
I do think that uh, the user experience, I mean, that's what the users care about at the end of the day. They want to have a consistent experience, something that's intuitive, easy to use to drive things like self-service, but also something that allows them to find information and that allows them to interact with their peers uh, in, once again, a, in a consistent and a productive way. And that's also a great way of, of documenting and capturing the decision-making process, which I think is important for organizations as they strive to achieve best practice and as they strive to improve within their organizations. Fantastic. Um, looking at, at the time, um, amazingly, we're, we're out of time or we're close to it. Um, as a, as a wrap-up, I wanted to provide um, some next steps or some tangible takeaways for, for the audience in, in each of these three buckets. So, um, Howard, I know that uh, you had specifically talked about a few of these um, in terms of what, what folks can take into their organizations today. Yes, uh, and there are lots of resources, too. I do think that... Um, of course, all of our research uh, focuses really on much of the user experience and how users utilize these tools. For instance, our self-service report just came out uh, in April, and that does talk about uh, self-service. It talks about collaboration. It talks about uh, governance and data storytelling, which we think is all part of the self-service experience. Of course, our big uh, BI flagship report, our 11th annual edition, came out at the end of May, and that talks about a whole host of things, not just technology, but also about the organizational roles that are important, and chief data officer, and chief analytics officer, and budgets, and where people are spending their money, and how they're successful, and why they're successful uh, within uh, their various initiatives. And then we have other things like our competency center report, which comes out later this year. But once again, always focusing, when you look at the collective of you know, research, and we published over 2,000 pages last year, when you look at all of it, it's really about how do we empower organizations to do a better job with their data assets and helping their users leverage it, and once again, help them align with the strategy and, uh, of the organization, which should support ultimately the mission of that organization. Uh, there are some other resources, too. For instance, uh, some of you may be aware, but we have a weekly tweet chat every Friday at 1 o'clock Eastern time under the hashtag BI Wisdom. We've been running it for almost a decade now, just a, a free resource that's available to you. We also have a monthly luncheon learning, also a free educational event. So the next one is uh, July 7th. You can go to luncheonlearning.com uh, and uh, attend that as well. So we try to provide as much free resource out there as well, including our COVID research, which we make that all a public domain. And we appreciate that, Howard. We will, uh, as, a, as a side note, we will uh, provide for our attendees today copies of both the, um, the most recent BI Wisdom of Crowds flagship, as well as the self-service report, and we'll provide links to the COVID research as well. And Omri, do you have thoughts on the next steps for, for the audience members? Well, become data-driven. Um, that's probably <laughs> the best advice I can give you um, in days like that. Um, I, I, I think it, it was, first of all, you know, Howard, it, it was a pleasure um, being a panelist next to you. Um, 
I, I learn every time that when we talk, I, I learn more about our industry and our, you know, kind of what, what, what are the table stakes and, and what is coming. So thank you for sharing this time uh, with me. Much appreciated. I, I think that eventually the world is going to become data driven and, and the world is a, is a big statement. Um, one of the investors I met a couple of weeks ago told me that he thinks if God had um, data, humans being would be built much differently. So maybe, you know, that's a takeaway. But um, with all seriousness, I, I actually think that eventually standardizing the analytics approach across the board and making it a strategic part of your business is what's gonna drive businesses to be successful. Um, we're obviously biased and we obviously have our own agenda, but trying to be very objective about it, regardless of which vendor you decide to go with, um, I believe that platforms are the next era for, for tooling organizations around um, decision-making. Terrific. Um, guys, we had one question and we've got maybe a, a minute. Um, one question came in that I thought was particularly good. So uh, I'll pose that real quick and then we can wrap. Um, so this comes from Clive. Based on your interactions with organizations, is the trust gap in terms of decision makers trusting their organization's use of analytics growing or shrinking? <laughs> Um, I actually think it's improving, and we've seen that over the course of years because we have been measuring uh, trust in data for a number of years. So it is improving, not sharply, because I think, as, as we said earlier, it's, it's a long-term endeavor where you've got to, you know, build the human trust, not only uh, focus on the, you know, on the technology assets. So I do think, from my perspective, it's been gradually improving year after year. Obviously, there are differences by size of organization. Small organizations can do it much more quickly than a large organization. But uh, I do think overall it's been improving. Amri, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't have measures around um, accuracy of is it shrinking or, or not shrinking. But I, I will say that, A, we're seeing more and more C-level executives um, involved in the process of implementing data, data platforms. Um, so that for me speaks volumes to the fact that organizations understand the value behind it. It's no longer just a nice to have, it's a must have system. And you know, it definitely indicates that the trust in making decisions based on data culture is growing. Um, we're seeing more and more standard standardization projects. People are actually looking to um, have a holistic approach across functions and across departments for their own organization, which means that they would like to have a better understanding. And I think once you have better understanding and trust it, and, and I think it's a good, good recap on everything we talked about, um, you will actually start making decisions based on the data you acquire. Well, uh, both of you, thank you so much. Um, it's It's been my pleasure um, to be 
you know, kind of tag along with with two of the industry heavyweights and, um, you know, very illuminating um, conversation. Really appreciate your time. Howard, great to see you as always. Omri, likewise. And um, attendees will follow up with uh, with an email with resources and and some links. Expect that to see that uh, later today. Thank you so much for sharing your, your time uh, with us this morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you may be. And um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you, guys. Thank Thanks you. Everyone.